Listener Production. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Zoe Callister-Hakewell from Doctors on Call, a passionate medtech at heart. Welcome to Beyond the Medicine Cabinet. The government in Wuhan, China, have confirmed that they are treating several cases of the virus. The first known death attributed to the virus has occurred today as dozens of cases have now been now closed off Wuhan. Trains, buses and planes have been cancelled, leaving many... It was March 11 of 2020 that the World Health Organisation declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. The number of cases outside of China continues to increase rapidly. Japan, South Korea, Thailand and the United States. What followed changed the lives of everyone. And infection rates continue to rise across the globe. Those lockdowns are now being enforced. Masks are now being made compulsory. Work from home if you're able to do so. Businesses continue to close. schools have been closed across the country. Government stimulus packages. Panic buying continues. Hospital workers are struggling with the number of cases. The impacts of the pandemic are still being seen today and those impacts go further than just direct sickness as a result of contracting COVID-19. Concerns over what's being coined the shadow pandemic. Rates of depression and anxiety are being reported at an all-time high across Australia. The number of people reporting mental illness issues has skyrocketed, with many struggling with feelings of depression and anxiety caused or exacerbated by the pandemic. And, as a result, antidepressants are being prescribed more readily than ever. Professor Ajit Singh is the founder and director of CNS Dose, a medtech company who are revolutionising how antidepressants are being prescribed. And he too acknowledges the huge impact that the virus has seen on mental health. People will, will respond in different ways. Some, it'll be water off a duck's back. Others, um, it'll be traumatising. And then on top of that, the routine disruption with schools, workplaces, economic uncertainty in the early days in particular. So I think it was the first mass synchronous traumatising event with direct existential impacts to each household globally in the history of humanity. So I don't think it's hyperbole to say it's really a massive thing that's occurred. And I think one of the things that's occurred to me is obviously the government doesn't want to have any chilling effect on vaccine uptake, even late in the piece, but it would be nice to declare the worst bit of the pandemic over so that people could debrief that normally after a, a traumatic event, once the fire's over or the war's over or the exam is over, you can debrief, you have a chit chat with people you trust that helps you process emotions so that don't continue to haunt you and disrupt your life. This hasn't been an opportunity. There's a lot of talk about the mental health shadow pandemic, but not a great deal of action with very simple public health messaging. One obvious one was alcohol. But right through the pandemic, um, there was a very significant spike in alcohol sales from bottle shops, which hasn't normalised since, is my understanding. It suggests a wedge of people have developed drinking problems. And at a very basic level, any chronic major stress will lead to some people developing stress-related conditions. Just like if you have a, a weight gain-related condition, weight gain 
can lead to you know diabetes, etc. But not everybody will get it. It's similar with with chronic stress like the lockdown. So I think one of the um, things that's happened with COVID is more people are being prescribed antidepressants. It was already quite a high rate prior, and that's um, you know accelerated. And it would be nudging. Haven't got official data, but be nudging of the order of one in five Australian adults with antidepressants. Wow. While recent events have seen a raised awareness in the importance of focusing on your mental health, many have struggled with feelings of depression and anxiety long before this shadow pandemic even came into play. Hi, my name is Don Blanford. I'm a 67-year-old veteran from the Army. My name's Heidi and I've been dealing with depression and anxiety for approximately 30 years now. I first encountered depression when I was about 35 and have been suffering from it ever since to varying degrees from very mild to very severe. I've been to lots of specialists along the way over my duration of my journey of trying to seek out help and then had different responses throughout my journey as well. Both Heidi and Don have suffered from feelings of depression. Both Heidi and Don have throughout their journey been prescribed antidepressants. And both Heidi and Don have seen mixed results from these medications. While there are many similarities to their stories, there are also many differences. Don's depression was abrupt. And in the space of only 48 hours, his life was changed forever. The first day started pretty normal. By about lunchtime, I was finding it extremely difficult to concentrate on anything. I was in a job where I had to make decisions virtually constantly and it was getting harder and harder as the afternoon went on to make a decision. I started procrastinating, which I never used to do. By mid-afternoon, I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea what it was. All I knew was that it felt like maybe I was tired, we'd been working hard, for long days. I asked my boss if I could go home early. By the time I got home, I really didn't care about anything. It just felt like initially just a greyness and that greyness eventually over the space of about 48 hours turned to a blackness. All I could do was think of negative things. I couldn't see any positive hope for anything. Life really seemed to be just a waste of time, uh, effort and energy. Motivation was absolutely zero. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to do anything. Um, Just sit there like a, a lump. You mentioned that you were working hard and you were feeling tired, but could you pinpoint anything that specifically triggered? No, I've never been able to. My wife made the decision. She was worried about me. What I just related was a Friday, Friday afternoon. By Sunday afternoon, she was concerned about the fact that I was not communicating, not doing anything, ignoring the kids, not participating in any activity whatsoever, and she rang the emergency ward at the then Door Park Hospital, in Repat Hospital in Melbourne. Tell us about the first appointment that you had with the doctor when you got to the hospital. They feared that I would become suicidal, that I was on the verge of being suicidal as it was. 
he asked me if I wanted to go to be admitted to a hospital and I said I really didn't give a rat's backside what I did. He asked if he admitted me, would I comply? And I said I would. He then discussed ECT with me and my only concern at that stage was that it might change the way I felt about my family when I was feeling normal. He assured me it wouldn't and I said, well, I really don't care. If you, if they wanted me to do ECT, I'd do ECT. If they wanted me to go to hospital, I'd go to hospital. If, if they didn't want me to do anything, I really didn't care what happened to me. Don, could you explain what ECT is? ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. It's basically what is commonly referred to as shock treatment. They put electrodes on your temples and pass an electric current through your head uh, that causes a convulsion. My understanding is it causes neurons in the brain to reset themselves somehow. By Sunday afternoon, I'd started to wonder whether life was worth anything. I hadn't actually thought about killing myself or what the consequences were. When the doctor talked to me, I could see what he was getting at and I could see that that would, might even be a really good option for me. Wow, so you must have been in a really dark place then. 48 hours from feeling all right to being in that place. I don't know how many treatments I had over the next week to two weeks. I'm led to believe it was between six and eight. They give you a general anaesthetic, a very light general anaesthetic, induce the seizure and then let you come out of the general anaesthetic on your own to an extremely severe headache. Was that a scary process, going through that whole procedure? I didn't care. It didn't, I was neither scared nor interested nor filled with anticipation. I just did what I was told. And do you think it worked? No, it's never worked for me. I've had, to the best I can recollect, I've had about eight lots of VCT in my life to the point that in 2017, when I was suggested again, I just said, no, no more. It doesn't doesn't do anything for me. What happened after ECT? Did you start on medication? They started me on medication almost straight away and it was really a case of just existing. I, I can't remember how long it was before I started to get interested in anything. What was the first medication that you tried? I've tried just about everything that they've come up with in the line of antidepressants in the 30 years that I've been on medication. And so what made you keep changing medications? I needed extremely high doses to have any effect. The normal dose never seemed to do anything and all along it's been a case of going rapidly to the maximum prescribed or maximum allowable level and in some cases they give approval to exceed the normal maximum dose and that happened for just about every antidepressant that I've ever had. So you mentioned that you had the highest possible dose. Did you experience side effects? Minimal side effects. I've always had minimal side effects. But the ECT, whilst it is claimed 
that it only affects short-term memory for a matter of days or a few weeks, I actually ended up with damage to my memory. Um, I have very poor short-term memory, not very brilliant medium and long-term memory, and most of my early life uh, is just a fog. How many medications do you think you tried? Probably well over a dozen. From about the end of the first six months, I went on to multiple medication to the point where in 2017, when I first was introduced to TMS, um, I think I was taking four different antidepressants. Could you describe what TMS is? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. It involves a large magnet being placed over just above the temple on the left-hand side of your head and magnetic pulses uh, pulse through your head for a period of about 40 minutes for one treatment. Heidi's story of recognising feelings of depression and anxiety was more gradual and came to a head while she was still at school. She was struggling with a number of feelings and emotions that started to overwhelm her and made her teenage years increasingly difficult. I started work when I was 15, after I left school when I was 14, as I was too young at that age to even work, which probably wasn't the best thing in hindsight as it didn't help my depression as I was a lot more isolated at home than being in a school environment. That was such a big decision at a young age. How did that feel for you and and how did that impact your daily life? It did um, impact my daily life as I wasn't as advanced in maths or English as other people my age were. And also when I went into the workforce, I was the youngest. So it was a little bit hard being the youngest always in a team. What started those feelings of depression and anxiety? Was there a trigger? My upbringing, I guess, um, growing up in a household where I had three older brothers, my mother and father were together and there was quite a lot of, I guess, physical abuse that would trigger my anxiety and I kind of found myself locking myself in my bedroom quite a bit. My depression came and just self-worth was really reduced. So it sounded like you were grappling with quite a lot when you were young. So tell us about the first appointment with a doctor that you had. Probably first time I started to seek help was in my early 20s. I'm 42 now, so that was quite some time ago. So how did you get from being 14, leaving school, being young, starting in the workforce, to then late 20s, finally seeking out help? What was the in-between that led you to that next step? I just felt like a screw-up. I just had suffered low self-esteem and just felt suicidal. So just had these feelings, but didn't really have a name to put to them. Therefore, couldn't really go somewhere to get those things addressed or fixed. I met somebody when I was 21. I was fortunate enough. I met my partner, who I've been with for over 20 years. And um, we both set out and we moved to Western Australia from Queensland. And it was there that I finally did start to do counselling and start to finally get some help. So that's when, how it came about. That can be so pivotal in a mental health journey, whether you have a supportive partner or not. That's amazing yes. that you've been able to find that and, and take that journey with him as well. Tell us about the first doctor's visit. What was the outcome? 
it was first time I even heard about depression or anxiety. Those words were really used when I was growing up. Yeah, and that's when I first heard about antidepressants. So what was the antidepressant they prescribed? At the time, I believe it was Lexapro. And how did that make you feel? It took a while to kick in, um, but when it did kick in, it did make me feel a lot lighter. I was able to get out of the house at the time I wasn't working, but it made me be able to get out and go for a morning walk. So I did see the change it did give. It also did give really vivid dreams as well. So it certainly did have an effect on me. What other side effects did you suffer from? Sweats in the night and very good dreams. Also, they do say weight gain. So I might be feeling a bit more hungrier than usual. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because um, I, in the last couple of months, have started taking a very small dose of Lexapro and my hesitation of doing that was weight gain as well. My partner very much supported me in that journey as well because he has suffered from anxiety and he's also taken Lexapro, which has helped him a lot. It's becoming more and more common. And I think it's amazing that you're coming on and, and speaking about your own journey and highlighting that for other people so that they may relate to your story and feel more confident to reach out and ask for help and, and sort of really understand what depression and anxiety is. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, yeah, it sounds like well done for starting your journey as well and um, persisting with it as far as I see it. If put on an extra five kilos or whatever, it's definitely worth it for the mental health side of things. When did you move to other medications after Lexapro? I felt like the antidepressant was weaning off and it wasn't really weakening as strongly as it had done in the past. So I had come off the Lexapro and tried another antidepressant called Apexel. I found that that time, that duration of coming off the one antidepressant to go into the other one, really horrendous. It very much did mess with my mood. It made me feel even to the point of suicidal. So I'd actually really was a hard time trying to get off one antidepressant to get onto another. I got onto that antidepressant and it didn't seem to have worked for me. So then I came off it and then went on to another one that's like Lexapro Clodzipramil. And I stayed on that for about 15 years until recently when I've just come off that and changed to another one. So sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. They're not a cure. They're not there to make you feel happy all of this time. They go hand in hand with therapy. Yeah, wow. So how many medications did you have to try? Approximately 14. With moving state, I now live in Victoria. And before that, I was in South Australia. So I had to see many, many doctors, different psychiatrists and psychologists in that time. And some psychiatrists, um, you go in there and they'll just prescribe you medication. And then if you've got side effects from that medication, they'll prescribe you another medication to deal with the side effect from that one. So that's a psychiatrist I did have, which wasn't a good one. And um, because that just overloaded me with too many drugs to the point that I was needing a pill container to tell me what I needed in the morning, lunchtime and dinner. So I stopped that and then I um, had a bit of a breakdown and then started fresh and saw a different psychiatrist. And then now just recently I've come to find a very good psychiatrist who's really helped me change medications and, and get in a much better result. So at the moment, I'm currently on two medications. I'm on a mood stabiliser and an antidepressant. But at one time, I was on close to six medications. By this point, 
Heidi and Don were both using multiple medications and treatments in an attempt to treat their depression and anxiety. The reality is that many who are prescribed antidepressants will move through multiple prescriptions as they try to find out what works for them. A process that can be long and have enormous implications on their ability to lead their best lives. Professor Ajit Singh from CNS Dose believes that there is a better way to approach this one-size-fits-all prescription model. So, I mean, the basic idea, it's called pharmacogenetics. This is a fancy way of saying genetically guided prescribing. So we know for most medications, when you take a tablet, a lot of it after it's absorbed by your stomach gets blocked at a thing called the liver, which is like the detox unit for what you eat. And people have genetic differences in how strong a block they put on the medications. So some people will block it very robustly, others not so much, and that affects the dosing they need. And the other element is the thing called the blood-brain barrier. Mm. So once it's got past the liver, it gets in the bloodstream, but then before it can get into the brain, it has to go through this layer called the blood-brain barrier. And that's also subject to genetic difference between people. So somebody might have a high block at the liver, a high block at the blood-brain barrier, and they might need then a very high dose of the medication to get better, but they may never get that high dose because the prescriber might not be aware and they may never transition to a higher dose. We're hoping to become the global gold standard for genetically guided prescribing. So, you know, if you do six dose increments, that could be six months, whereas if you knew to do that early, you might just spend one month getting there. Traditionally, when they found the dose of a medication, they're just finding the average dose and plus or minus a couple of standard deviations. So mathematically, they find the dose that works for 68.1% of people. Yeah. So what about so the 32%? Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the way medical science works is we, we kind of homogenize the heterogeneous and we look for the average size hue and say this shoe should fit your foot. That sounds like a problem to me in healthcare. Yeah. So the, the saying is sort of start low, go slow. And so basically each month you'd, you'd wait to see if there was an effect clinically and then either leave the dose or increase it or try a different medication. Some patients who are sensitive to medications might be, uh, when you increase it, intolerant of it. Then you go back to square one like snakes and ladders with a different medication. So you can see very quickly how, you know, six months can go by. This six months, it might be, you know, somebody's got dark thoughts, they're barely holding it together. Don and Heidi had both faced these challenges of dark thoughts. When Don first heard about CNS Dose, he was intrigued, as was his doctor. The doctor I had at the Geelong Clinic, the feature of my depression that seemed to pique his interest was the fact that I was on such high doses of medication when I first went to him at the Geelong Clinic. He was, I guess, intrigued, isn't too strong a word, by the the fact that I was on three or four different types of medication at such high doses and had been for so long, and yet the TMS seemed to have a very positive effect. He suggested that maybe there was a feature of my biochemistry that was out of whack and suggested that I have the profile done. Heidi was also made aware of CNS dose. Last year, I actually went into the Geelong Clinic, which is a psychiatric hospital. 
So I had to stay there and I was put under a psychiatrist's care there, which is Professor Ajitsi. And he helped me wean off some medications I was on and get on to some new medications. And that was in last May, that was. So that's only fairly recent. So I was on Valium as well. So he's helped wean me off the Valium and wean me off Supramilk and also another mood stabilizer I was on. And now I'm on a new mood stabilizer and on a new antidepressant and no longer take Valium. And that was through CNS dosage, which was really great that I actually had that genetically prescribed option for us to help discover which medication would best suit me and how effective it was with my metabolism, how much I needed. Don had some helpful findings as a result of CNS dose, and these findings very much shaped his treatment plan. It's been a combination of TMS and, in fact, cutting back on two of my medications completely and reducing the dose on a third. We've found that the fourth one I actually need because I've it was discovered that I've got a, feat, a component of... Um, obsessive compulsive disorder to a very mild extent underlying the depression. The first thing that was done that Dr Singh did was stop my um, lithium. I'd been taking lithium for over 25 years. He was concerned about, I think it was liver damage. Normally with lithium, if a patient is taken off it, it's taken off gradually I was on a very high dose of lithium and Dr Singh suggested we we go for broke as a result of the test and that we just stop it and see what happens. So we did. We stopped it cold and uh, I had no reaction whatsoever and that simplified things to a very significant extent. When we got the results of the gene test, He went through it with me and they pinpointed that I was what was called a rapid metabolizer, that my body metabolised the drugs and not just antidepressants but all sorts of drugs, including antibiotics and analgesics, significantly more quickly than the average person. How did the test go? What, What did they physically do to you to conduct the test? Oh, it was just a saliva sample. Yeah, very simple. Chuck it in an envelope and post it. CNS dose are seeing some incredible results, both in medical studies and with the patients that are using this technology. One of those studies is currently underway. So we've we've taken a unique approach mm. um, by combining the liver and the blood-brain barrier and just uh, suggesting dosing rather than saying, you know, use this pill, not that pill. And so time will tell, you know, whether our version becomes something that becomes adopted widely or or not. We're quite hopeful that this independent replication study may get some of the sceptics over and then um, it'll be become a more entrenched part of care. Should this technology become more widely embraced, Professor Ajit Singh also recognises the other areas in which this innovation could be utilised outside of treatment for anxiety and depression. Clinical trials that we've done, so the two peer-reviewed published ones and the independent replication are 
mainly built around major depression and antidepressants as the single biggest group. So when you study more than one condition at once, it affects the statistics because mm. you've got to bucket the sample into different sub-buckets and can be harder to prove there was a real effect. But in terms of like the pharmacology of medications, it would apply very broadly to other types of medications. I think, um, you know, when I started, you know, years ago, I was probably like 20 years living in the future. Yeah. And I think maybe I'm now just living, yeah, (laughs) I think I'm living maybe two years in the future. So I'm thinking we're getting closer to it becoming, you know, more of a norm. Uh, We continually, you know, refine our system based on the latest evidence. And then we are looking to develop artificial intelligence therapy. So again, we see ourselves as a health solution company. We know the two key elements of mental health is beyond medication is accessing therapy. Um, and that's very difficult to do now, but it'll be quite a moon moonshot to create our sort of version of Siri therapist. Amazing. That sounds incredible. So how does CNS Dose work? Say I'm a patient and I'm coming in to sit and chat with you about wanting to change my medications. What do I need to do? Do I need to prepare? What does the process look like? Yeah, so particularly through COVID, everything is just online and mailed to you. So there's a, a CNS Dose website and you, you basically um, order it, you nominate your doctor. The doctor gets the report, so you can't unilaterally change your pills, which could be backfire badly. Mm. But then the, you're encouraged to get a copy of it through your doctor. And there's an on- online payment. It's not highly expensive. So the cost has gone down from thousands to a couple of hundred dollars. Well, it sounds like it's cost effective. It's time efficient easily accessible, the patient can do it themselves, you know, it's got everything going for it. So what research went into this innovation? The, the first study was really what I did for my doctorate, which was published in 2012, looking at blood-brain barrier genes and guiding antidepressants. And then a proprietary study was done, a randomised controls study, comparing guidance and non-guidance, which had a positive finding. And then there was a, a third study a replication led by academics who are based in Canada who looked at the accuracy of predicting the dose and it came back 85% accurate at determining the dose ahead of time. So there was uh, three different data sets before we even went to market um, and the whole sort of principle is to, you know, to make sure it's not snake oil. Um, mm. The icing on the cake is a fully independent replication study and that's what we're sort of going for now. What does a doctor learn from this technology and how does this inform their clinical decision-making? Basically, the the report, which is basically like a PDF, will list a whole bunch of different psychiatric medications and based on the patient's gene profile that's determined from the the spit sample they send in, it'll say whether they need a high, medium or low dose of a whole list, multi-page list of medications. And then it's just an extra layer of information to help the doctor weigh up what might be the best fit for them. So it really helps to shortlist things that are average dosing with the green zone and that, that's most likely to handshake well with the patient's system. Wow. And so what has the reception been to this technology? Yeah, so it's kind of, I think emerging technologies are interesting in medicine. They take a long time to be adopted. They talk about the adoption curve and, you know, even genetics, it's, you know, the whole genome was finished in 2001. So it's like, you know, 21 years later and there's still only limited day-to-day clinical applications. So there are, there are groups who are recurrent users and have embedded it, 
But the bigger group of medical practitioners at the moment are still watching and waiting. Mm. And this is part of why I guess get, getting the message out is good. And also, you know, that independent replication study to try and get it over the line. And a lot of people have been thinking, look, when is pharmacogenetics going to become prime time? You know, is it this year, next year, 10 years from now? And time will tell. But my hope and intuition is maybe the, the next couple of years we'll start to see it become routine. And when it reaches a level of evidence that it's considered best care, then it enters practice guidelines and starts to become more than optional, but, you know, something that needs to be offered. The workload and the information load for clinicians now is huge. By definition, it's higher than it's ever been because mm. we know more than ever. So th- there almost can be like this cognitive overload and assimilating the new doesn't just automatically happen. So sometimes there needs to be, I think, push-pull where, you know, the, the patients might present to their doctor saying, look, I've heard of this, is it snake oil or is there something in it? And begin a dialogue. Sure enough, those conversations are happening with Heidi and Don, both huge advocates for what the treatment has done for them. When asked if they would recommend the treatment, both had the same thing to say. Oh, undoubtedly. There's no question in my mind of its importance and its usefulness as a tool in managing depression. Definitely. I definitely recommend it. The results can only be positive, even if it means you find out that the medication you're taking is the best medication for you. At least you get confirmation that your biochemistry is best suited to what you're taking. The other side of the coin is you find out that there might be something that will help you in a different way that's more positive. So if, if in doubt, have the test. The work that CNS Dose is doing continues to change the rules in personalised medicine and innovative medical breakthroughs are happening every day. With this in mind, I wanted to ask Professor Ajit Singh just how hard it is for aspiring medical professionals to enter into this space. It's a difficult area because there's an extra layers of regulatory burden and it's also there's an extra layer of um, then costs when things have to be vetted to uh, medical standards. So the key is really to have to have a passion for affecting that outcome. Definitely you need the right team. So that's one of the universals. I'd say that the other thing with startup is a lot of it's luck of timing. Mm. They say live in the future, but it's best just to live five years in the future, not 100 years in the future. <laughs> but if you make some kind of breakthrough in med tech, you're actually easing human suffering. And while in the case of depression and anxiety, there is no magic fix, and it is instead a journey, Heidi and Don are two examples of how a move toward the right treatment can be instrumental in how those living with the condition are able to get by today. I'm pretty good. I had uh, my five maintenance doses of TMS this week, and as is normal after that, the depression that had started to close in a bit on me has abated. I have a problem with pain management um, and it's a little bit easier to cope with pain when the depression is at a low ebb as it is now. I still have a lot of ups and downs, so I'm still in weekly psychotherapy with the therapist, um, which would go hand in hand with my medication to address current anxiety. So I wouldn't say that I'm completely anxiety free, but my mood has lifted. I no longer feel suicidal, which is great. 
and I'm able to get out of bed and do things, um, do chores, which is a great because there was a stage where I couldn't do any of that. With a simple cheek swab, CNS Dose are revolutionising how antidepressants are prescribed and how depression, anxiety and medications are impacting lives. And with Professor Ajit Singh suggesting that this same technology could also be used across other areas of medicine, it could be only a matter of time until CNS Dose technology becomes an ingrained part of prescribing individualised treatment plans that actually work. Beyond the Medicine Cabinet is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Kuyong Group. Hosted by me, Zoe Callister-Hakewell. Audio by Kelly Falston and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.